Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast made by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. This is our first podcast in our new Ask a Fellow series, where we sit down with a fellow and ask them our burning questions about a topic within their subspecialty. I'm Zara Morali, a PGY2 in internal medicine. And I'm Leah Karianopoulos, also a PGY2 in internal medicine. Today we're meeting with Dr. Siraj Mithawani. Siraj, can you introduce yourself? Um, so I'm Siraj. I um just finished my hematology residency at McMaster University. Um, prior to that, I did uh, internal medicine residency at McMaster and also did medical school at McMaster as well. Um, currently, I am a fellow in thrombosis and a clinical scholar at St. Joseph's Hospital in Hamilton. Perfect. Thank you. So to start off today, we'll begin with a brief clinical case that's similar to one that Siraj actually saw on the wards as a mere PGY-1 overnight. Um, So a 29-year-old female is referred to the internal medicine service for easy bruising. Um, She was at yoga earlier in the day and noted that she was bruising far more easily than usual with minimal trauma. She also had an episode of epistaxis at home lasting about 30 minutes that eventually stopped with uh, nasal pressure. The emergency physician that referred her to you noted a high blood cell, a white blood cell count, and a low platelet count in mild anemia. You review her CBC yourself and note the following, um, WBCs of 35 and a differential that shows blasts of 30, neutrophils of 0.5, monocytes of 4, and lymphocytes of 0.5, a hemoglobin of 100 with an MCV of 105, and a platelet count of 20. You've got no CBC from previous to compare against. Um, She's got no past medical history, only takes Advil as needed for tension headaches one to two times a month, and has no known drug allergies. Her family history is unremarkable. Her social history is non-contributory, and uh, she's previously completely well. She notes no fevers or constitutional symptoms. On physical exam, all her vital signs are normal. Um, but you notice several two to three centimeter bruises on her legs and arms bilaterally. The remainder of her exam is otherwise normal. Well, so I'm doing my first um, block of night float right now, so I can (laughs) adequately say that if I saw a patient like this overnight, I would be um, a little bit concerned and a little bit um, overwhelmed and not really knowing what to do. So I guess, first of all, let's take a step back. Um, What are blasts? Um, So... Blasts basically represent the most immature myeloid or lymphoid cells that you're going to see um, in the peripheral blood or in the bone marrow. Um, So from medical school, you'll remember that hematopoietic um, cells mature from a stem cell, um, let's say in the granulocyte series, all the way to a mature neutrophil. So they actually start as myeloblasts, then promyelocytes, myelocytes, metamyelocytes, and finally uh, bands and granulocytes, which you Um, ultimately see as mature cells in the peripheral blood. Um, So really a myeloblast is the most immature form of the myeloid series and a lymphoblast is the most immature form of the lymphoid series. Perfect. Um, And so when you hear about blasts in a smear, what would your main differential diagnosis include? Um, So firstly, blasts are, you shouldn't see them in a peripheral blood film of a healthy um, person. The differential diagnosis is one of a few things. Um, Firstly, um, the most important thing you have to rule out is an acute leukemia. So 
Those can be myeloblasts or lymphoblasts. So um, acute myeloid leukemia and acute lymphoblastic leukemia are on the differential diagnosis. I just want to highlight, uh, which we'll talk about, I hope, a little bit later, um, acute promyelocytic leukemia, which is a subtype of acute myeloid leukemia. And it's the M3 subtype, and the abbreviated form is APL. Um, you can also see blasts in a number of other hematologic diseases. Um, one is myelodysplastic syndrome, especially as the disease advances and the bone marrow um, failure progresses. Uh, you can sometimes see blasts in uh, myelofibrosis. Um, you often see them in chronic myeloid leukemia, uh, in, sometimes in a leukemoid reaction, meaning somebody who's just very unwell. Uh, you often see in that case a spectrum of maturing white cells, but um, occasionally you may see uh, some circulating blasts in that setting. Um, on the oncology floor, uh, if you're seeing a consult, say, as an internal medicine resident, uh, you may see circulating blasts in somebody who's having a recovering bone marrow, uh, for example, after um, myeloablative chemotherapy, or if they've just received uh, Neupogen or GCSF. Um, just to point a couple things out about blasts um, in the peripheral blood is that blasts aren't always blasts, and sometimes what you're going to see in the automated differential is what looks like blasts, but they actually might be misclassified. Um, firstly, Sometimes blasts can actually represent um, mature, sorry, um, firstly, sometimes blasts can represent um, other immature hematopoietic cells. Um, and other times, you actually might have a, a peripheral blood that does not have any report of blasts, but it, it may have, for example, a very high monocyte count. Um, so that's a situation where in um, the Coulter counter, um, the blasts are being mistaken for monocytes um, because monocytes are some of the larger, largest normal circulating blood cells. And when you're separating cells by size, sometimes they can be mistaken for blasts. Or sorry, blasts can be mistaken for monocytes. And so how do you get over that problem overnight if you're not sure? So if you're worried about a peripheral blood, especially a differential, what I would do is look to see if the differential was done in an automated way so that'll be an auto differential and if that's abnormal you should ask for a manual differential or you should ask for a laboratory technologist um, to look at the blood film manually and when they do that they would actually do a formal count assessing what uh, cell types there are morphologically as opposed to relying on uh, an automated process from the machine. Um, of course, you could also look at the peripheral blood yourself, and if you see something that's really unusual, you should raise it, and oftentimes uh, technologists um, can really point you in the right direction. And in most centers, including our own at McMaster, there is an ability to speak to a lab technologist basically uh, any time, day or night. So it's a good resource to have uh, in an emergency. Fair enough. Maybe we'll have to look at, learn to look at smears ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> Not something I know Core how to do skill right for now. Overnight. Yeah. <laughs> so high monocytes could possibly mean blasts. Yeah. Is what I'm getting. Okay. That's right. Uh, so when should I be really worried overnight then if I'm seeing blasts? So, you know, as I mentioned, blasts are always worrisome. Um, but there are some patients you might see who are, say, known to heme hematology or have a pre-existing diagnosis of something like myelodysplastic syndrome um, or maybe um, 
they're known to have um, uh, like a history of uh, leukemia. I think that the ones that you should really be wary about and that would need urgent evaluation are when the blasts are newly found. So if you don't have a previous CBC um, or if the previous CBCs were normal, um, that to me is more suggestive of an acute leukemia because um, the disease tends to evolve over a span of weeks to months, not usually over years unless it was preceded by myelodysplastic syndrome. The other time when you should worry is if the blast count is really high. Um, so often people quote like a blast count of 50 to 100, but certainly any blast count that's measurable in a differential is concerning. Um, you should also worry if the patient has other CBC findings suggestive of bone marrow failure. And by that, I mean um, that the patient has pancytopenia. That really suggests that there's an issue with maturing blood cells and what you're seeing is a spillover of the immature blood cells into the peripheral blood, um, those being blasts. Um, and finally, I would worry more if the patient looks unwell. For example, if they have febrile neutropenia or they um, just look unwell for other reasons or have other um, laboratory abnormalities um, that might suggest end organ damage. Okay, so we have a patient, new blast, never been seen before on previous CBC. At what point do we get on the phone and call hematology for help? Um, <laughs> right away. <laughs> actually, I'd say pretty soon. So I think the role of the internist or um, the internal medicine resident is to make sure that the patient's stable. Um, so obviously get them in a monitored setting, repeat vital signs, use oxygen, intravenous uh, fluids as necessary, and so on. And then you'd want to really go through um, a brief list of hematologic emergencies that you just want to rule out or at least investigate. Because the more information in the form of blood work or clinical findings that you have, the more useful that will be for the consulting um, hematologist over the phone. Um, so um, I would say that um, the approach is to rule out emergencies and then seek hematology consultation uh, quite promptly thereafter. Yeah. So that's an appropriate overnight call, not a wait till morning call. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and earlier you'd mentioned APL. What exactly is that and why, why does it matter? Um, so APL is a subtype of AML. So you might remember from medical school or if you've done a hematology rotation that um, AML has seven morphologic categories using a system called FAB. So APL is um, the third subtype, which is M3. So the reason why it's important is because um, it just has a very unique natural history and also has a very unique treatment. So um, APL often presents with DIC um, and there's a big burden of early mortality, meaning within like hours uh, to days, especially if it goes under-recognized or unrecognized. Um, Oftentimes, people actually die of hemorrhagic complications, uh, for example, intracranial hemorrhage. Now, the reason why that's important or doubly important is that you can prevent those deaths by giving a treatment called all transretinoic acid or ATRA immediately once you suspect the diagnosis. So ATRA actually helps the APL cells, which are forms of, a form of blasts, differentiate into normal cells, and it actually acts very quickly. And it's not a chemotherapy. Uh, the side effects are relatively benign. Um, 
So it basically shouldn't be withheld uh, in cases where APL is suspected. The other thing is that APL um, is a very curable condition. And um, once you get treatment going, most patients have a very favorable prognosis and are ultimately cured. So it's just a medical emergency where if you intervene early, you have the potential to save a life. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, so I guess if I'm seeing uh, our patient tomorrow overnight, the, our young female patient with um, bruising who ha- presents with these blasts, what other tests should I be ordering to establish the diagnosis? Um, so to establish the diagnosis in hematology in general as a field is you basically want to look at where the tumor cells, you, look, you want to look at the source of the tumor cells. So um, in lymphoma, we look at the lymph node and we do a biopsy there because that's where the lymphoma cells are most likely living and hiding. In leukemia, and especially acute leukemia, we're fortunate that the, that the malignant cells oftentimes are circulating. So what you do is you actually look at the peripheral blood and the peripheral blood smear, which can be a really helpful diagnostic tool. It's something you can get overnight immediately, and um, it's not very resource-intensive. Um, so what I would start with is actually just looking at the blood film or, of course, um, having a technologist or a hematologist look at it. And certainly getting a technologist to review it manually um, is a reasonable thing to request overnight. Um, the reason why it can be helpful is for numerous actually reasons. Uh, number one is it can separate AML from ALL sometimes. So blasts can be difficult to differentiate morphologically you may need some more fancy testing um, as time goes on. Um, but as an example, if you see hour rods in the blast, that's pathognomonic of AML because ALL never really has hour rods. It's a classic Jeopardy question. <laughs> right. We'll get it next time. <laughs> um, all, um, as well, uh, we mentioned APL. So the thing about APL is that it does have a characteristic morphologic finding in the peripheral blood. So in APL, the cells actually have multiple hour rods often, and that's not typical for just run-of-the-mill AML. And also, if you look at pictures of APL uh, cells, they tend to have a folded nucleus, and they tend to be very hypergranular. And sometimes they can actually be quite striking, like how coarse the granulation is, um, which actually can establish the diagnosis or at least raise suspicion for it. And then there's some other things that you can look at in the peripheral blood. Um, for example, you might have a clue that the diagnosis or the, the um, diagnosis is, in fact, CML. So in CML, you have a maturation of all the white cell lineages, not just the blasts, but all of the white cells all the way to the mature granulocyte. So you'd see that in a peripheral blood in a differential. And you'd also have basophilia. Again, you'd see that in a differential, but it's also quite striking to visualize on a peripheral blood film. And, and finally, there are certain peripheral blood findings that are more commonly seen in MDS. So if you have somebody who's very elderly, for example, you might be wondering whether that person actually has MDS or maybe MDS evolved to AML. And some of the findings in an MDS peripheral blood include um, hypogranular neutrophils, pseudopelgar-Hewitt cells, which are bilobed neutrophils, and oftentimes you can have some changes in red cell shape and size. Um, which we call anisopoikilocytosis. 
Is there anything else? So that's awesome, first of all. Um, is there anything else that should be included um, just in general to be sent with all of this work up? So I'd say overnight, um, that's your that's your best diagnose, uh, sorry, diagnostic tool. Um, the other thing that you would do if, say, you were seeing this patient during the day uh, is uh, peripheral blood flow cytometry or cell markers, which is basically a sophisticated test um, that looks at subpopulations of cells and um, classifies them based on the markers that they express on their surface. So typically, blasts have expressed um, um, a cell marker called CD34, and if um, that's uh, elevated, um, it might suggest um, that you have an increased blast population. The definitive diagnostic test for acute leukemia is a bone marrow aspirin biopsy, but that's not something you can really arrange overnight, <laughs> uh, obviously. Um, so to make a diagnosis of acute leukemia, you need more than 20% myeloblasts for AML or lymphoblasts for ALL uh, on a bone marrow specimen. So um, certainly and um, that can be done by internal medicine or hematology. Um, and there are some additional tests that are more sophisticated that we send to subclassify things, um, especially um, for APL, which has a characteristic um, um, translocation, genetic translocation, um, which is uh, translocation of chromosome 15 and 17. And that is the confirmatory test for APL. Again, that's not something you're going to do overnight, but that's the um, diagnostic workup once you... Um, have some time to think about what's going on. Fair enough. So let's say you've come to a point where we've gotten the smear, we've looked at it, it looks like blasts are worried about something like an AML. Um, what other emergencies should we be ruling out before getting on the phone with hematology? So what I would order um, at that point is um, definitely just, um, you would have had a CBC already. Um, you would order blood work to rule out um, DIC. So that would be a fibrinogen level, INR, PTT, you have a platelet counter ready, and oftentimes we order a D-dimer to look for uh, the amount of fibrinolysis that's, or sorry, the um, extent of fibrinolysis that's 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 going on. Um, if the patient's febrile, you should work that up for febrile neutropenia with blood cultures and a chest X-ray and a urine uh, culture. You should also uh, order um, electrolytes and extended electrolytes, so that's calcium, magnesium, phosphate and a uric acid level to look for tumor lysis syndrome. Because the cells are dividing so rapidly in acute leukemia, um, you can sometimes have spontaneous tumor lysis syndrome even before you administer any therapy. Um, and finally, um, you should uh, obviously look at your patient and just make sure that there's other no other non-hematologic emergencies that uh, would warrant your attention. Um, for example, um, uh, the patient may be having myocardial ischemia or an infection at another source or so on. All right. Um, so for these things, it said, look at the CBC, examine that, obviously clinical assessment of the patient, make sure they're not febrile. Um, if they are febrile and have uh, severe neutropenia, um, looking at uh, preemptive antibiotics with culture, of course. Yeah. Um, and then sending off lab work to make sure there's not a tumor lysis. Yes, yeah. or a DIC. Or a DIC. Yeah, and 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 I think the other thing I'd, I'd say, you know, the other thing that you just shouldn't forget about is that um, 
you also need to manage the cytopenias. For example, if the patient was bleeding and they were thrombocytopenic with a very low platelet count, say less than uh, 10 or 20, that would be a reason to transfuse them platelets. If they have symptomatic anemia, you would transfuse them red blood cells. Um, so those are obvious things in a way, but um, common things being common, the patients will have cytopenias that you have to manage. And probably the next most common complication is febrile neutropenia. So really knowing your approach to febrile neutropenia and you know transfusion of blood products, that's going to be where your uh, money is. DIC, tumor lysis syndrome, leukostasis, etc. Those are more unusual complications. Still important to rule out, but they're just not as common, I'd say. And I don't think we mentioned leukostasis earlier. So when would you when would you worry about it? How would you examine it? When is it a problem? Um, so leukostasis is basically when you have an elevated white cell count um, such that you are actually impeding blood flow to your organs. Um, and what's actually happening, I guess to put it simply, is that the abnormal cells or the immature cells are clogging up your microvasculature, and that usually presents with pulmonary symptoms. So for example, hypoxia, pulmonary infiltrates, and shortness of breath. Um, and also it can present with neurologic symptoms, so altered level of consciousness, um, headache, dizziness. Uh, because for one reason or another, those are the vascular beds that are most commonly affected. Typically, you need a quite a high blast count to think about leukostasis as a diagnosis. So uh, you might read that you need a blast count of like 50 or 100 to think about that. Um, you can definitely get leukostasis at a lower blast count. So I wouldn't rule it out, um, but it's typically, um, you know, high blast count, screen the patient for those symptoms. They can actually be quite subtle um, at presentation and evolve rapidly. Wow, so I think I know more about blasts than I ever thought I would. (laughs) (laughs) So what other uh, hematologic emergencies should be on my radar? So I think the only one that we haven't talked about um, uh, is cauda equina syndrome or cord compression. That's not commonly um, a manifestation of acute leukemia, but um, we do see that complication with lymphoproliferative disorders, um, so lymphoma, where you have mass effect on the spinal cord, um, or with myeloma, because myeloma can alter the bone integrity and then lead to compression fractures. Sometimes you can also have myelomatous deposits which compress the spinal cord. So for cauda equina syndrome or cord compression, you're really evaluating the person's um, neurologic status, uh, focusing uh, on the lower extremities especially, looking for, depends where the lesion is, but looking for changes in reflexes, in um, tone, and you'd be also assessing whether they have the Babinski reflex. Um, Finally, you'd be asking them about saddle anesthesia and evaluating that. You'd evaluate rectal tone and you'd ask them about symptoms of um, uh, sorry, bowel or bladder uh, dysfunction. So it really is dependent on the physical exam, it sounds like. Yeah, because, you know, overnight, you're not going to be ordering an MRI spine commonly. So you want to definitely select patients that you think are at high risk of the complication and push for urgent investigation in those patients. Mm -hmm. Sounds good. Um, All right, well, that was 
Awesome. Um, do you have any, so just before we finish up, if you could give us sort of top five clinical pearls to walk away with and not forget when you're dealing with a situation like this overnight? Um, so I can think of a few clinical pearls. So number one, um, blasts are a worrisome finding in the peripheral blood. They're never normal. And if they're new or if you're concerned, uh, you should be involving a hematologist early uh, to evaluate the, pa- uh, the patients appropriately and um, to get advice about managing emergencies. Um, number two, um, if you do see blasts reported in the peripheral blood, especially if it's an automated differential, uh, you should ask to have the blood film reviewed manually. So you could do that yourself. You could ask a technologist or you could involve a hematologist to look at the um, blood film or a, um, a hematopathologist. Um, number three is that we talked a lot about circulating blasts, but acute leukemia can also present with pancytopenia and no circulating blasts. So the diagnosis should be suspected when you have peripheral blood circulating blasts or you have new or rapidly evolving pancytopenia. Um, if you're suspecting acute leukemia, you should think about APL, which is a medical emergency, uh, because that um, can be treated successfully with all transretinoic acid as a starting point um, overnight. Uh, And finally, um, we talked about some hematologic emergencies, um, including severe cytopenias, febrile neutropenia, um, DIC, tumor lysis syndrome, leukostasis, and cord compression. So if you're thinking about a patient, sorry, if you're thinking a patient has a new diagnosis of hematologic malignancy, you should be screening them for those complications. Great. I I think I I feel uh, way more equipped for my call shift tomorrow. I don't know how you feel, Leah. Definitely better. (laughs) Um, So thank you so much, Siraj, for taking your time to talk to us today. And for being our guinea pig with this, because exactly. we haven't done this one before. So no first ask Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. This has been the Internet Work, and uh, we hope to see you again next time. So thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Blasted Blasts. This episode featured our special guest, Dr. Siraj Mithawani, hematology and thrombosis fellow. And was recorded and produced by Zara Morali. And Leah Karianopoulos, internal medicine residents. Music is by Lakshman Vasanthamoan. The Internet Work series is created by Allison Wyde. And developed by Leah Karianopoulos. And Zara Morali. And is overseen by Dr. Daniel Brandt Vegas. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit us at theinternetwork.com. This podcast in- included several complex topics, so please feel free to tweet or message us with any questions. This is The Internet Work, and please tune in again soon. Thank you.